Shalom, and welcome to Heretics Standing at Sinai, a podcast for those in or adjacent to the Jewish community who are searching for a place to deepen their spirituality without sacrificing their rationality. I am Rabbi J. Telrav, and each week we have a conversation about new ways to exist in the world as an intentional presence and of new ways of making our lives mean something. Whether you've been exploring Jewish spirituality for years, or this is your first time considering it, we're glad you're here. I'm joined this week by my guest, Alan Youngstein, who dropped into my life a little more recently as a new member here at Temple Sinai. His wife and he immediately drew me to them with their easy smiles and their good energy. And the more time that I've spent with each of them together and separately, the more my first impression has been confirmed. Alan found his way to our Avodat Halev meditation service on Shabbat mornings, and he also spent the day with us yesterday at our half-day meditation retreat. And he has also the distinction of being the first guest on this show to request the opportunity to join me for an episode. I have so enjoyed the time I've spent already getting to know you, Alan, and I'm so glad that you're here. So... I have to thank you immensely for actually inviting me and taking me up on when I approached you. Hmm. Well, let's let's get the conversation underway. Let's begin the way we do each week. And I'll ask you to just share a little bit about your spiritual journey, where you began, where you see the path that took you here. The... Okay. I come from a, a bit of a different direction. I was kind of indoctrinated into the Orthodox way of observing Judaism you know, from the get-go, both my parents are from Eastern Europe. And I think in a lot of ways, I almost cheated because it's been so ingrained in me that it it almost kind of repelled me away, especially during my high school years. And then, you know, going off to college, it was almost as if I very much wanted to be more like everybody else who didn't hear or see all those things in as deep a way as I did. Oh. I think a lot of things also sort of feel automatic to me. And so when, when we talk about spirituality and I listen to some of the other folks and, and the path that they've taken, the discovery process coming from places either of not having been born into the Jewish faith or having been born but not having had much of an exposure, it almost feels like, um, well, of course, why wouldn't you think that you had to be as caring for your neighbor as you are for yourself, or that you shouldn't be thinking more about justice versus, you know, injustice. And then when you start looking at it from a political perspective, it almost scares me even more because some of the actions that certain people seem to take and their reasons for taking them are so much the antithesis of what you would expect. You should bookmark what you just said about the choices people make, the actions they take, and why you should hold on to that because that is the central topic of today's conversation. Okay. <laughs> Just thinking about how we're all on a journey and how you described your journey first taking you away from where you started and then perhaps this last leg, however long it is, is bringing you back towards the same conversations that you were pushing away in your adolescence and young adulthood, but now it's on your terms. 
And now it, it says a mature adult who's ready to explore God and meaning and spirituality, the things that you were handed as a kid, and now you have in your your toolkit, now it's time for you to figure out, all right, what do they mean to me today? And what am I going to do with them? I think that's great. Well, hopefully you're right. And hopefully I have enough chutzpah to actually face it and mm. not keep it, you know, off in a corner. Mm. Amen. Speaking of amen, let's go ahead and do a blessing before we uh, we get into our, our letter today from okay. Reb Yerachmiel to Aaron Herschel. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher Kidshanu Bamitzvota Vitzivanu La Asok Bedivrei Torah. Blessed are you, God, who gives us the ability to learn and through that learning to engage with words of teaching that leave us transformed, that guide our personal growth. Amen. Amen. So here is our letter. My dearest Aaron Herschel, I'm pleased you have such a deep mind and are willing to wrestle with my often jumbled thoughts. These letters have given me a chance to sort out my thinking somewhat, but I still have a long way to go. But of course, the real joy of your last letter was the word about the impending marriage between you and Sara Leah. You had not mentioned that there was a woman in your life, and so to read of your engagement was such a surprise. There's no need to explain why you kept her a secret. I was in love once and preferred to keep my feelings quiet until I was certain of them. I did not wish to become burdened with feelings I did not feel simply because I once loudly announced that I felt them. When I was ready, I spoke to Fega's father. May they both rest in peace. It was not a pretty sight. I hope your experience was better than mine. I had so little to offer. I wanted to be a scholar. He wanted someone to go into business. I wanted to teach. He wanted someone who could sell. I could never have convinced him. I think it was his daughter that turned him in my favor. She had that power over him, over me as well. We should talk about death and grief sometime. But not now. Now you want to talk about evil. If the task of humanity is to know God, how is it that we experience such evil? Could there be a more difficult query? And yet I can tell by the way you write of evil that you grasp much. You're right to go back to first principles, to the dual nature of God as yesh and ain. Good and evil are twins birthed by the same singular source and substance of all reality. And thus, we read in the book of Isaiah, I am the source and substance of reality. There is nothing else. I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the source and substance of all, do all this. Evil is not the opposite of God. Evil is a manifestation of God. What then is the purpose of evil? Why does God allow evil to exist? You answer wisely. It's not a matter of purpose and allowing. It is a matter of the unconditional nature of God's shlemut, completion. If God is God, 
God must contain all possibility, everything and its opposite. Good and evil are but two of the infinite possibilities of God. All this you understood on your own. Excellent! I cannot tell you the joy I feel at the mind you have. So now, let us go a bit deeper. For while the possibility of evil is of God, and therefore necessary to the divine Shlemut, the various manifestations of evil are not always necessary. I shall speak of two types of evil, necessary evil and unnecessary evil. The first refers to the simple sorrows of everyday life, accident, sickness, old age, and death. The second refers to the wickedness that we humans inflict upon each other and the world around us. The first is necessary or natural because it arises from the fleeting and transient nature of the world of Yesh, our everyday world of seemingly separate selves. Suffering, old age, death, accident, natural disaster, all the pain that arises from the passing of time and circumstance. These are called evil by those of us who imagine ourselves to be separate and permanent beings. They are called evil because they thwart our desires and in the case of death, shatter the facade of our own permanence. In fact, most of what we call evil is simply the order of things in time and space. For all the pain this causes, there is no real evil here. The proper response to the natural suffering caused by necessary evil is to grieve and to accept. Free from the illusion of separation and permanence, we're able to embrace the natural suffering of impermanent reality with a deep sense of grace and perhaps even humor. We understand that sickness, accidents, the ending of relations, both business and personal, old age and death, they're all a part of the nature of Yesh. And while we do what we can to minimize these, we do not pretend that we can eliminate them. One who understands the nature of Yesh opens to a deep calm that allows one to feel fully and respond constructively to whatever life brings. There's a story about Rabbi Akiva, who was once lost in a shipwreck at sea. He alone survived, and when asked how he did so, he said, Whenever a wave arose, I bent into it. He bent to the wave, and it washed over him. This is how we are to live in the world, bending into what happens and allowing it to wash over us rather than to sweep us away. So much for dealing with the natural or necessary evil of the world. Let us now turn to what I call real or unnecessary evil. Unnecessary evil is the evil we humans do when we refuse to fulfill the dual human obligation of teshuva and tikkun, returning to God and repairing the world with godliness. Real evil happens when we act in ways that disrupt unity, that foster discord, 
that promote division, hatred, and fear. How does this evil arise? Real evil arises from an inability to get beyond nishama, the hard-packed ego that we are supposed to till and to love another as oneself. Last year, the winter here was harsher than most. The cold was unbearable, especially for the aged and the very young. There were some in our village who called the cold evil, but this is foolish. It was winter, and it was cold, nothing more. But there was evil that winter. The evil came in the decision to raise the price of firewood so high that many of us could not afford to purchase enough to warm our homes. My point is this. Real evil is an act of self-gratification that disregards the worth and holiness of other beings. Real evil is generated by a self out of touch with life, a self cut off from the oneness of God and the compassion, love, and justice that oneness commands. What is the antidote to such evil? Tilling the soil of self and selfishness, letting in the breath of life that awakens the self to its true nature as a being created in the image and likeness of God whose purpose is to serve life through love. Unless and until the self is broken open before the greater unity of God, there is no hope for real compassion, justice, or love. And how do we make for self-opening? Through the practice of teshuva and tikkun, continually returning our attention to God and our behavior to godliness. Look for yourself and see. Vishalom. So now do you see why when you mention the behavior of some of those in power, it boggles you? You were speaking directly to the topic of this week's letter, to the, the question of evil. Mm-hmm. So uh, after hearing Reb Yerachmiel's sage wisdom, any initial thoughts that occur to you? I wonder whether or not the unnecessary evil truly is born as being unnecessary. And the reason I say this is coming here today to sit with you and knowing that the topic was evil, stuff started running through my head. And one of the things that um, I was thinking, especially in relation to that comment about people doing things that don't line up with what a mensch would do, so to speak, I started thinking, and this is where, you know, the whole psychology and all this other, you know, multiple ways of thinking about what we truly are searching for when we're looking at spirituality. Um, I think if you're hurt or if you're scared or if somebody, you know, when you were young didn't protect you the right way or if there's a, I don't know, a weakness that God has given your nefesh, it somehow plays itself out in ways that that doesn't support... um, what you would want it to be if everybody was operating as if God is all. Mm-hmm. And it, it started feeling to me like maybe that's where all this unnecessary evil really comes from. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's 
that's a, a truth that we're facing today because every time we think about what would be necessary to eliminate the necessary evil, what would be required, we start thinking about having to unlearn biases, all the isms that we're plagued by, or at least to identify them and, and acknowledge them. And to do so requires generations of work mm -hmm. because we've, while we're sitting here talking about expanding the notion of love and unity, there are parents out there who are raising their children from a, a place of discord and division. And those kids are going to have a lot harder time overcoming that and embracing a different worldview. I think there's also, too, an element, and the ego shows up here, of seeing the world as a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. In other words, for, for me to win, I have to take some of what you are going to lose. If you win, it means I'm losing something. And that's a very painful way to see the world. That's a a profoundly dualistic way, the competition and, and, and otherness. And that way of seeing the world is much easier, much, much simpler to, to transmit to a child. Uh, so we have, we have a long road ahead of us if we are to enhance, expand, increase the amount of non-duality which leads to love or vice versa, love which leads to non-duality. I love the idea that that he says good and evil are twins, born of the same source. And we hear this in other ways, especially in Judaism. You know, we've got Shabbat and the rest of the week. We've got the holy and the unholy or the profane or the not yet holy. We've got, we've got division all over the place. And yet we don't, we don't pull them apart so that they're not related. And I really love the idea that, uh, that good and evil go hand in hand. Yesterday at the retreat, we were talking a little bit about how there's a tendency to see blessings and to thank God for the blessings, but then to just suffer through the challenges of life, the necessary evils, and to not see those as a part of God, which is easier. You know, it, it allows for cleaner relationships. Mm. I was thinking about the Zoroastrians, kind of an ancient tradition where it's thoroughly dualistic. Everything in the world is is separated. And it's a kind of a constant tension and battle. The the god of the night wins out over the god of the day when it becomes dark. And then the god of the day wins out as the sun rises and it becomes light again. And that's an easier way to see the world because it makes it it makes the relationships more straightforward. Right. If God is the source of all the good in the world, that's lovely. You can assign all the bad to the devil or Satan. It would be much easier that way if you could just do that. It would be like wanting to have a, a relationship with a person that's pure, easy. You know, there's only good stuff, and that just doesn't exist, right? It's a very, very hard concept, especially, you know, when you were talking before about parenting and bringing a child up. I think the, the notion of at least what we think a child can understand, right, makes it so that okay you don't do this you don't you know give your hand to a stranger because you don't know what could wind up happening and all of a sudden you're bringing up visions of bad versus good and how it affects you individually that's hard and i think also i don't know how that this has anything any relevance but when you're talking about good and evil sort of existing at the same time and examples in torah immediately what i thought of was cain and abel 
or is it Yitzchak and Esau? Mm-hmm. They were they mm-hmm. like, twin brothers, mm-hmm. and also you know, and the fight over the birthright, and yeah. and it makes it very hard that if you even if you study that when you read that kind of stuff, how do you pull back from it and put it into the context that you're talking about? Those are two great examples because in addition to just competition and conflict, we're told about each of those sets of boys how different their nature is. Mm-hmm. And so the the difficulty of connecting with the other, even if he's your brother, because he's so different in every respect. You know, he's a farmer and he's a hunter. He's a homebody and he's a sportsman. It's so difficult to connect with someone who you just don't, you don't share common ground with. I also think there's something really important he said early on as he's recapping what Aaron Herschel had said. He says, you answer wisely. In terms of evil coming from God, it is not a matter of allowing it. I think that that's really important. For me, the theology that some will say, which is God has a a purpose for everything, that God works in mysterious ways, and we don't understand why God did this, those kinds of theologies never work for me because it, it insists on a willful, conscious being who decides tornado over here, car accident over there, cancer on this one, and the lottery on that one. So good and bad, it, it's, it's difficult for me to relate to that. And so this non-dual presentation of God works really nicely for me. And it says, in as much as the necessary evil, the things that are going to happen, in one of his other books, Rami Shapiro talks about God as the great happening of all happenings, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense of, you know, ehia asher ehia, I will be what I will be. God is just the universe happening. And so as things happen, there's no allowance. It's not a, it's not a, Conscious. a decision. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's important for me because otherwise, you know, I look around the world and I think this God is a jerk. Right. You know, I don't. How do you justify? Yeah. Right. How could you be in a relationship with someone who who you felt so such polarized feelings about? Right. You know, if somebody loved you one moment and then threw a tornado at you the next moment, right. how could you maintain any kind of depth of authentic relationship? So, yeah. And so for that reason, you can see why people peel off the the necessary evils and assign them to the devil or or some other external reality that's not God because if they were to allow for it to be a part of God it would just be too difficult it'd be too too complex. So as you were describing um, your thoughts, it made me start thinking, especially given you know how do you justify a tornado happening and impacting these people? Of course, it takes me to the Holocaust mm. and how how can that even be understood necessarily by humanity in generational chunks and maybe it's a process that sort of helps to set in motion some clearer or better understanding that we won't see till the the year's 3000 in the secular calendar mm-hmm. i don't know it, oh no i love that because and i'm going to i'm going to take your words in a slightly different direction i'm going to appropriate them when you talk about process it brought up for me the idea of evolution. Mm-hmm. And Rami talks about how evolution is a process. 
that has led through all the, the rules that Darwin laid out for us has led to this moment in this form of, of conversation. You and I couldn't be having this without a process that has happened over millennia. When you step back and you look at it from a, a meta point of view, you get up on the balcony and you look down, you see, ah, oh, yeah, I can see that process leading to this point. At any one step along the way, you might have stopped and said, what is this piece for? My mind jumps to the platypus. You know, what, what is this piece for? This doesn't make any sense in the, in the grand picture. And there were plenty of branches of that process along the way that did not pan out. An animal that evolved with a mutation that didn't serve it well, and so it, it, it fell away from the story. So in the sense that the Holocaust is a natural piece of our human evolution, it happened. We'll get into those unnecessary evils in a moment. I like the idea that that now, having been a part of our story, it has happened, has brought us to this point and allowed us to ask questions. We use the Holocaust for every big theological treatise. You have to test it against the extremes. The Holocaust is the extreme. And so when we look back at that, we have something to use in our growth, in our process. And so got willing by the year 3000, the Holocaust isn't just some ancient memory that is in a history book, but it did actually positively impact the process of human ethical evolution. Right. Well, so let's turn our attention now to the other half of the, the chapter, the, the letter, which is the unnecessary evil that comes from uh, the pain and suffering that one human can, or humans, can inflict on other humans. That, I think, is the really interesting piece here. He gave us a great theology for how to deal with tornadoes. Hmm. By the way, to, to go back to that one for one more moment, I think it's so important that he says, so what do you do in that case? You grieve. Mm -hmm. He's not saying to, to put on a stiff upper lip and just white knuckle through it and pretend that it's not hard, that unnecessary evils like accidents and and tragedy and 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 natural death after a long good healthy life the way it's supposed to go they still hurt and so he gives us permission as humans to say ouch this this hurts i'm in pain and to grieve and not deny it which i think is great so now moving on to the really hard stuff he he points to ego as the source and substance of all of this this evil. And I think that really works. Mm -hmm. I, in preparing for this conversation, I was just rattling through a list of evils that would fall into that category and trying to test them against his premise. Mm -hmm. Let's let's play that game a little together. Can you, when when you hear about evil, let's leave the Holocaust over here for half a moment, but we don't need to. We could use it. Okay. What what pops to mind? Where where's an evil in the world that that occurs to you? I think every leader of every country that is abusing power, that isn't necessarily representing the, the, the health and good, and good standing of the people that he's supposed to represent, the evil sitting over there. Perfect. Yeah, and that one is really almost obvious with with uh, Reb Yerachmiel's premise that it's ego. Right. You know, for for the individuals to stay in power, that is their ego saying more for me, less for everybody else, and they will do, or say, or decide whatever is necessary for their own personal best interest. Right. There's the zero sum model, 
and the the sense of self. And we know too that one of the greatest ways to to really cement your base is to divide mm-hmm. and to create fear and and distrust of the other. And we see that all over the place. We see it today in America. We see it today in Israel. We see it right now in Russia. Uh, just the ability to to separate. I love that example. Yeah, Easy. No, it's, and it's very obvious. Right? Yeah. It's hard. I think it's a little harder, and, and this one just came to my mind as I was listening to you. You'll watch a film, and there's the guy who wants to perpetrate the evil, and then there is the mercenary, mm-hmm. and the mercenary basically is transactional. And that's mm-hmm. a bit of a different evil, certainly evil, but maybe born more out of wearing blinders. Yes, right. So uh, that's a great example. So the mercenary or the, the hired assassin looks at the target or the marker, whatever they're going to call him, as nothing more than a job. Clearly does not see in the eyes of their target divinity. Mm-hmm. Clearly does not see that their souls are the same, bound up. That assassin is working for money or some other self-interest that that they that they are completely blinded to the unity of all. And you can extend it further. I was thinking about the powers that we were talking about a minute ago, the country leaders who often for for all the same kinds of motivations will wage wars. And mm-hmm. so the men and women in the armed services sometimes can be put in that same role as the hired assassin. And there is very clearly a need for them to do their job. They have to dehumanize the the other. To be able to fulfill the role of a soldier, you can't see the divinity in the guy on the other side of the battlefield. And that's really painful. I think that in many cases, that's probably why our service people come home so deeply scarred. Because when the adrenaline wears off, when they can get up on the balcony and think about what they've done, many of them are deeply wounded by Mm -hmm. by having put that side of their humanity in a closet to be able to do those jobs. Very painful. You know, the only one thing in that example as compared to the mercenary... So I think in many cases, for the folks in the armed forces, the belief is that they are doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas the mercenary either has no belief or doesn't care. Yeah. I think that's correct. I think that the, the idealism of many of our soldiers is so beautiful and so honorable. You know, and I served in the Navy as well, Mm -hmm. and I, I... and my father did, and my grandfathers both served. It's important to me. The, the, the United... Well, the military is a meaningful institution for me. And militaries are a... They are a necessary... I don't want to say evil. Maybe I will say a necessary evil. Because they... they and specifically division. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need a military if everybody is Absolutely. working well together. And so even the most idealistic young person who is who is signing up for or enlisting for a defense of democracy and and this 
beautiful country of ours. In doing so, they are saying what we do is better than and more important than what our enemies are doing. And we have to do that. I'm not saying we can get along without an army or military, but, but there is there is ego involved, even if it's a collective ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no. And that's really hard to separate out from the the example that we were talking about before with the Holocaust as being part of a process to get you to an end point. Mm-hmm. And in theory, if if done from a truly correct place, same thing yeah. with the military. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example that I was thinking through. And this one's tougher, but I want to see if you can play the rabbi and drosh it out for me. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> thinking about his presentation, and we... Again, this past week, we just had another school shooting Mm -hmm. uh, in Nashville. So let's parse out and try to understand where evil exists and what kind of evil exists in that school shooting. Okay. So it feels to me like there are significant portions of necessary evil that are living inside that process specifically with the young lady who felt, you know, she's struggling with her own identity and was taking some sort of level of revenge or taking out the frustration on that particular school, irregardless of who in particular she was impacting. The necessary evil there was that somehow in her upbringing, she was slighted, mm-hmm. and she was not able to process it in a way, in a constructive way. Mm-hmm. Probably still hasn't gotten to that point in her life, and so her mm-hmm. only way of dealing with it, probably after a whole bunch of thoughts, was, okay, I, I got to get this out, and she got it out. That's Beautiful. not to make it say it's any better. No, that's so right. You did it so well. So there, there is necessary evil. I would call it mental illness. Mm. Um, And that's not to say that people who are transitioning are mentally ill, not at all. But this process led to mental illness. And and in that way, she was a victim as well. Where was the unnecessary evil in the whole event? As this young lady probably went through her life, those instances where purposely she was taunted or she wasn't taken seriously given a a fair shake as a human being as a child of god just like anybody else anytime that that happened and they're behind the wall nobody will ever be able to identify yeah that's exactly right and by the way i should say i actually don't know what their pronouns are Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't know if she identified as a lady at this point or had transitioned to a man so for those who are listening and identifying our improper use of pronouns we apologize Uh, it's (laughs) me profusely it's only ignorance so everything you said and then i'm going to add on to that that there is unnecessary evil in the fact that our society has developed its own fetish with weapons Mm -hmm. and that we have allowed the proliferation of assault style rifles and that we have politicians who for their own reasons as we were saying before refuse to take a stand against it and most of those same politicians have disassembled the safety nets that should have been in place to help Mm -hmm. a young person Mm -hmm. get through all of life without all the trauma that you described um 
I think that that ego is behind and underneath all of that. Everything you said. We'd have to go back and, and think about each other shooting in its own case, but I bet you that if we did, we wouldn't have to work hard until we saw the same conditions you pointed out, which is the necessary evil of a person who is wounded and who is in their own way a victim as well, and then all the unnecessary evils that led to the conditions in which that happened. Yeah, no. What, it's a tangled mess. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, so I have one more thing I want to talk about. I'll tell you what I think was unsatisfying by this letter. Mm-hmm. When, when Reb Yerachmiel finishes telling us about the necessary evils and how to grieve our way through them and then move on, accept them, and the unnecessary evil and where that comes from, he finishes by saying, so what's the antidote? And the antidote that he provides is very internal. It is, what do I do for myself around these unnecessary evils? And that's okay. We all perpetuate little bits of unnecessary evil. So he says the antidote is cultivating the the neshama and doing teshuva and tikkun and finding the the unity of the universe and loving everybody and everything and therefore acting in accord. And I appreciate that. That's great. What he doesn't address is what do we do about the other who isn't doing this work and who we can't inspire to do this work? And right now the other is everywhere. And so we'll talk next week about human nature and where some of this greed and self-interest comes from. But I wanted more prescription from the book on what do we do about the unnecessary evils of the world? Mm-hmm. And there may not be a good answer to that. Maybe. Maybe the, or maybe the answer is you have to, unfortunately, put your faith that just like you're going to till your own soil, mm-hmm. they all are going to do the same. I thought that as well. I think you said it better than I did. If I succeed at tilling my own soil and I'm nearby somebody who is inspired by whatever growth I've shown and wants to be more gentle in the world than they currently are, maybe they'll too take a step in that direction and little by little perhaps the the effect radiates out into the world. It's uh, wishful thinking perhaps, yes. but sometimes that's all prayer is, is wishful mm-hmm. thinking. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Oh. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. And if there are others out there like you who have enjoyed listening to these conversations and would be open to having a recorded conversation with me, I hope you will reach out as well. You can click below for a transcript of my conversation today with Alan Youngstein. Each week, I try to leave you with something to think about so that your time with us next time is built on something you've been chewing on. So I mentioned the topic next week is human nature. Ask yourself, where does this sense of ego and threat and zero-sum nature of the world come from? What is at its core? And what do we do about that? If you enjoyed this and you want to be notified of new episodes as they come out, you can click on the subscribe button. 
And be sure to share this with someone else that you know is going to enjoy exploring spirituality in this way like you do. Until next time, all you heretics out there, stand proud. <laughs>